This episode was recorded before April 1st, 2022, when Danielle Smith announced her candidacy for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. I think one thing that has surprised people over the years is that uh, that there really is something that's unique to crowdfunding, which is the wisdom of the crowd. But the, but the reality is, is that fraud rates in crowdfunding are actually substantially lower than what we'd expect, and even lower relative to the uh, number of fraud cases for publicly traded companies. Hello again, it's Danielle Smith, president of, of the Alberta Enterprise Group, and this is another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This week we'll be speaking about entrepreneurship and all of the different means of crowdsourcing funds for entrepreneurs with Douglas Cumming, who is the DeSantis Distinguished Professor of Finance and Entrepreneurship at Florida Atlantic University and Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. Professor, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to join you. Now, I know that uh, Jason Clemens will be angry at me if I don't ask you to first define our terms so that we can talk about what an entrepreneur is and what an entrepreneur isn't. I, I know that uh, there's a, a view of entrepreneurship that it has to be disruptive. It's not enough to just be a business owner. And I think this this notion of creative destruction comes from, from uh, Joseph Schumpeter. And I just want to make sure that we're kind of talking about the same thing when we talk about entrepreneurs. For sure. Yeah, there is often a tendency for folks to say that entrepreneurship has something to do with self-employment, but it's not necessarily the case. Uh, many self-employed people aren't really all that entrepreneurial, and you can even be entrepreneurial within a large company uh, as an employee. So uh, entrepreneurship is typically about creating something new, a bit of uh, creative destruction, as you said, and, and so... Uh, but it's not not really. Uh, sometimes people, for empirical measures, will look at, look to things like self employment, but but it's really uh, really about creating something new. If we were to try to develop some better measures around it, what would we look at? Because one of the things I'm often struck by is when there are periodic articles saying all of these huge companies that existed in the 1960s, none of them exist today or very few of them exist today. So that's sort of a after the fact recognition that there's obviously been something that's happened in the meantime. But are, are there better measures for how we can determine how entrepreneurial a society is? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky. Uh, some academics have tried to do this over the years, and they developed a, a group called the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, or GEM is the acronym. And they do it based on survey questions, asking a bunch of surveys, uh, you know, have you been thinking of starting a business or exactly how innovative your activities are, those sort of survey questions to get around, you know, not using self-employment as a measure of entrepreneurship. and. Uh, they, they've had, I, I think, some degree of success, but anytime you start to basing things on surveys, a few people shrug their shoulders. And uh, so it's, but indeed a tricky thing to measure. Same thing with measuring innovation. There's a tendency that we want to count patents and patent citations, patents for the number of innovations and citations for the quality of innovations. But 
you know, many firms create new things without patenting them. Uh, uh, there's even in, you know, computer science, there's open code software, which is the antithesis of uh, patents. And so, so measuring innovation, that too is equally challenging. Uh, so we're in an evolving state, I think. And the person that comes up with good measures is going to become quite famous. <laughs> well, well, we'll probably end up talking about some proxies because I wonder if the measures you look sure. at are maybe the some of the best indicators of entrepreneurship. But I, I almost feel like I need you to make the case for why creative destruction and entrepreneurship is something that we should value because it seems like there's this constant tension in economies and with and with political leaders that once a company becomes, what's the term, too big to fail, then that's when they can start doing the, the rent seeking in order to keep right. their competitors out. And yet we all like innovation. We all love the latest new gadget and the, the newest technology. So it seems like we have a, a double mindedness about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, without innovation, entrepreneurship, the modern economies are not going to do well in the 21st century. So uh, to keep things moving forward. Uh, indeed, you know, there, there's even an expression and a book with the title Saving Capitalism from the Capitalist. So that if, you've, if your company's risen to the top, you don't want to engineer a set of rules that allow yourself to have a monopoly or oligopoly and keep everything else at the bottom and uh, make sure that others have trouble. Uh, so that's, that's the... Um, uh, you know, approach that folks like. You want new ideas, innovation, entrepreneurship, encourage people to start new firms that they have a good business model, a good business idea. And without without those innovations, you know, uh, businesses could be disrupted by people in other countries. And so that's really the engine of economic growth and prosperity. Innovative countries are going to succeed. The ones that don't innovate and support entrepreneurship and innovation are going to be in trouble. Is there a good measure? How how who would you say is kind of near the top of the list when it comes to embracing the, this notion of what entrepreneurship brings? You know, which place around the world is that what yeah. you mean? Well, yeah, because uh, well, if I look at Economic Freedom of the World Index, which isn't the best yeah. proxy really, because it always has Hong Kong and Singapore at the top of the list, and there's been quite a bit of disruption in the world when it comes yeah. to looking at whether those are are truly free jurisdictions. And so, right. freedom isn't an entrepreneurship support aren't necessarily the same thing. No, no, there uh, you you can have uh, entrepreneurship and relatively. I don't want to say oppressed, but uh, very restrictive societies like, you know, for, ex for example, China and Hong Kong as China Hong Kong becomes increasingly integrated with China. Um, and then same thing with Singapore, some very restrictive rules, but at the same time, having a very stable legal system and certain legality with uh, their, their transactions and enforcing things so that on, on some levels it does enable entrepreneurial activity, but on others, uh, many folks in North America would consider quite stifling, but the you know within the innovation entrepreneurship sphere for the longest time, folks have looked to great models such as Silicon Valley. Of, um, mm -hmm. So not they're not the best for everybody. I know. So I, I'm Canadian. I spent uh, most of my life living in Canada, and uh, you know many venture capitalists and entrepreneurs talk about problems associated with starting a business in Silicon Valley in terms of competing for employees, employee loyalty, expenses and running a business there, uh, the competition for talent. And it's not necessarily, you know, a good fit for everybody. 
but that's um, but there you know one thing for sure in that environment is that the access to capital is perhaps greater than what you see in other contexts. Then then in terms of nationwide, if you're to pick a good nation that has an excellent startup environment, would would probably the world's number one for many years people have considered to be Israel. So they have excellent education system, extremely high tech businesses, very successful businesses, um, uh, capital for entrepreneurs, including crowdfunding, but not limited to crowdfunding. And so uh, there, there are even books called Startup Nation, and that's all about Israel. So uh, that's, that's perhaps one of the greater success models around the world. Excellent. Well, we'll talk a bit more about what makes both of those regions successful. But before we get too deeply into this, when I when I start thinking about entrepreneurship today, I, I can't help but think it's almost exclusively the realm of technology companies. That when we talk about angel investing and venture capital, it seems like it is the the, the technology model and maybe yeah. that's just the word, the period that we're going through right now, where we're just having such an incredible boom as we're talking about the Internet of Things and different products communicating to each other and 5G. But yeah. when we're talking, should we should we confine our discussion to the the technology realm, or is there a broader way to be thinking about entrepreneurship? Well, I don't, I don't think that you don't need to make that restriction at the outset to say it's all about technology. But the reality is, is that most everything in the entrepreneurship and innovation space is about technology, mm. but there, there's no need to sort of definitionally to, to make it about that because there's the odd business that creates something new without uh, being overly, uh, you know, high tech. Uh, so you don't, you don't need to, I, I think, you know, cut some folks off just by virtue of the product or service that they're trying to create. Okay. Just so, and, and we may find examples that are non-technology, but I, I think that yeah. probably most of the examples that we'll be talking about in the in the next hour or so are, are likely to be in the tech space. Absolutely. So, I, so yeah. I want, I just wanted to make sure that, that people knew that's where we're going. So so yeah. let's, then, let's then talk a, a little bit about how important it is. We talked about the regulatory environment as being one that allows for the attraction of and support of, of new entries. So that's important. But how important is capital being able to finance an enterprise and having the kind of regulatory environment that, that makes capital raising easier? How, how important is that from an, in supporting entrepreneurship and innovation? Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's everything really, you know, if you don't have money to develop your product, uh, then then the idea isn't going to get off the ground. Uh, you know, you don't want to be only financing those people that are lucky by birth to have, mm -hmm. you know, an endowment funds that allow them to get ahead. Uh, uh, so having external capital is critical for enabling the average person uh, that has an idea and uh, some risk-taking uh, abilities and incentives to do something new to get ahead. And so without the access to capital, then, then entrepreneurship can't flourish at all. So that's one of the hmm. necessary components. Uh, it's not sufficient, but it's certainly necessary to enable entrepreneurship. And how easy is it to access capital? Because I guess there's, a, there's I guess, two major approaches that you can take. I, I hear a lot 
um, in the investment community that I was just recently introduced to in Alberta called Startup TNT. They talk a lot about bootstrapping. And I, I don't know what the technical definition of that is, but it kind of, it sounds to me like you kind of do it yourself, friends, family, mortgage your own house. That seems to me to be the, the most common way of a startup, at least getting into into the market is is that just the is that the reality that uh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur you've got to put a lot of your own skin in the game absolutely you do need to put your own skin in the game the expression bootstrapping by the way came from the, the idea that you know if you think of wearing boots with straps you know and you're lying on the ground and you're literally pulling yourself up from your own bootstraps so that's uh you know which is sort of impossible you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps uh, so that, that's how that expression came to be, uh, bootstrapping. And, you know, when you're an entrepreneur starting up, if you don't put in your own skin in the game, then then the external investors aren't going to see, uh, you know, wh why they should get involved, uh, you know, by taking a bet on a, a relatively younger company uh, that where the entrepreneur isn't fully committed by, you know, going headfirst into battle, so to speak, with, with their own resources behind them. So, you know, the way, the way we think about it is uh, costly signals. So, you know, it's because it, it's hard for folks to convey their ability to external financiers. And so entrepreneurs that are successful have ways of signaling to those hmm. uh, investors something about their quality that other folks have not the ability to replicate or to make a false signal. So developing some kind of new idea uh, perhaps comes alongside getting, getting an award, a grant, winning a show or, or winning something on TNT or getting far ahead in that kind of show. Uh, something that distinguishes them from someone else as a way to get access to capital. Huh. Yeah. Let's then talk about going to the bank because I think for most people who are not entrepreneurs, the experience with the bank is you go out and you buy a home and you're able to get a mortgage for a long period of time at a very low interest rate. And then if you decide that you want to go into business, holy Dinah, it is not the same terms, not even close. I, I just recently yeah. got a business loan. And so you can get a long-term mortgage on your house for one or two or 3%, but to get a yeah. business loan, it's more like eight or nine or 10%. And so that be, I, I don't understand why there's such a huge difference. It's, it's actually sort of surprising to me. You would think that somebody who's wanting to create a business with revenue and employ people, you would think that that would get more favorable financing terms from the bank. And yet it's not the case. Yeah, yeah, the incentives of the bank managers are certainly different uh, than what would be needed in many cases for entrepreneurs. And think about how folks at a bank are compensated and what their incentives are. So the incentives are to minimize the loan loss ratio. So uh, there's there, you know no incentive on the upside. It's all about minimizing the downside. And so uh, banks make loans and uh, you want to make sure that the entrepreneur pays those loans back. And so they have very strict ratios that they look at in terms of, you know, income relative to things like assets, uh, how much money is being borrowed, uh, what kind of collateral can be put up, uh, all these sort of strict financial metrics that they have a huge amount of data with that they show are correlated and related to minimizing the loan loss ratio. It's not about creating anything on the upside. 
So you, you just introduced this topic by saying, well, entrepreneurship, what is that about? Creating something new, you know, generating huge things on the upside. And the bank's incentives are everything about minimizing the downside. And so entrepreneurship and bank loans, you know, certainly some, many entrepreneurs have some bank loans, um, but that's, uh, you know, many entrepreneurs can't get off the ground because they won't be qualified for getting a bank loan because if the brand new idea with minimal collateral, they need, you know, capital to get their idea off the ground. It's just, it's not going to fit for what's needed to, to indeed get a bank loan. It's remarkable it's, actually, because I've, I've, I, I often look at that and think, well, if it should be binary, it's either, yeah, we'll invest in you or not. It seems strange that the rate would be higher because then you're making it even more difficult for the the entrepreneur to pay it back because yeah. they've got yeah, a higher right. interest charge. It, it seems yeah. seems counterintuitive that, that you would it make is. it even more difficult. Well, you know, although in finance, you know, you know, we have this strict notion that higher risk, you need a higher return, you know, mm. so the bank bank's going to be thinking about it as, well, there's a higher chance they don't pay us back. So we want a higher interest rate. Um, uh, so that, I think that's where they're thinking, but indeed, you know, the, as a, uh, there's a Nobel prize winner, Joseph Stiglitz had, uh, shown dating back to 1981 that, that, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, by the way, ran the world bank for a few years and everything wrote these books, globalization and its discontent. So very famous guy and his Nobel prize winning idea was that you increase the interest rates, you increase what's known as an adverse selection problem, meaning mm -hmm. that your higher interest rates are associated with attracting the riskier borrowers that indeed have a higher ch chance of failing to pay you back. Uh, so uh, so you're by having the interest rates higher, you're getting the borrowers, you're more likely to get the borrowers uh -huh. that you don't want to actually borrow money from you. Uh, so that's well, what me, they mean by adverse selection. Let me pose another hypothesis to you, and you can tell me if there's any support for it in the economic literature too, because I've been struck by places like Grameen Bank and some of the work of Hernando de Soto doing microcredit loans, and the repayment yeah. rate is quite remarkable, I think in the order of 98%. Yeah. And so yeah. in some ways, I've it's got me wondering whether we create a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy or self-fulfilling reality when it comes to business failure. If we starve it out of capital, well, of course it's going to fail, especially if you mm -hmm. need the capital at a pretty crucial time. So, and then yeah. you have stats that show the businesses fail. So are we caught in a bit of a hamster wheel? Uh, fair point, fair point. The uh, Garmin Bank and, you know, microcredit as a whole new area. But one, you know, one thing to, that I would say about that element is that uh, folks that are involved in the successful models there, people t uh, that uh, in, the, in those contexts take huge pride in paying back the amounts that are borrowed or, mm -hmm. or however the financing arrangements are determined. And, you know, they, they would rather, you know, lose an arm than not, you know, show mm -hmm. good faith and paying back as part of their community and other things. So, uh, done properly, that, that type of uh, uh, capital access around the world and, the, and in the developing world can do tremendous good. And uh, but it's very much dependent on the context and how that's put forward. And and it's also understanding the local conditions and the incentives of the mm -hmm. people that you're lending money to or whatever the particular financing arrangement is. Well, that's interesting. Well, let's let's then talk about crowdfunding, and I know there's different types to it, but I I wonder, do you see evidence of that same kind of desire to 
to pay the money back that happens from, from crowdfunding? Does it have that same kind of community imperative that I don't want to embarrass myself? Is there any evidence that that's the case? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that has surprised people over the years is that uh, that there really is something that's unique to crowdfunding, which is the wisdom of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so thinking about general things about crowd equity crowdfunding and regulations and our concerns with this marketplace is that we are worried that perhaps there might be a great amount of fraud in this marketplace that, um, uh, for example, my former law school securities law professor in Toronto had uh, quipped once about, you know, if you mentioned crowdfunding to a securities lawyer, you better get a defibrillator because they're going to have a heart attack because uh, there's no prospectus level of disclosure as we have with an initial public offering. And so, but the, but the reality is, is that fraud rates in crowdfunding are actually substantially lower than what we'd expect and even lower relative to the uh, number of fraud cases for publicly traded companies. We, we did a, a look at this a few years back. And, you know, if you look at frauds per listed company, um, you know, say in, on NYSE or the New, uh, the New York Stock Exchange or on NASDAQ, you know, it's, it's around on, on uh, NYSE, it was uh, about two and a half percent of listed companies per year. There's some sort of issue involving the SEC and the detected fraud. And then on NASDAQ, it's a little bit higher. Listing standards are a bit lower there. So perhaps correlated with listing standards, about four and a half percent of companies mm-hmm. per year. And then, so then you think, well, with crowdfunding for the number of campaigns that go out, is it, is it, is the fraud rate higher than four and a half percent per year? Absolutely not. It's like way, way, way below 1%, way below like 0.001%. So the detected frauds are very low. Um, What's the theory behind that? What, what, what do you think is happening there? Well, there's a lot of eyes on the projects. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so to give a famous example, uh, I like this example because I really like Kobe beef. I don't know if you've had Kobe beef, but there was- I've not, uh, but it's a it's a very premium beef product. Don't they yeah, feed it? it was, don't they give it massage to the animals and feed it beer and all of exactly, that? Yeah, yeah. you want to, that'd be a good life to be the cow that is uh, massaged and given beer your whole life. You know, but uh, although with an unhappy ending, I suppose, but the- you know, so the idea with the entrepreneur that, that the entrepreneurs had is that, you know, you go to the gas stations or or that's typically where I've seen this product and you get something called beef jerky. It's like a stick of meat in a package. And if you've ever had it, at least it's not for me. I don't, don't like the taste, although I like beef. And so the idea was that they would uh, put Kobe beef into the beef jerky. And so that was their funding idea. It was a Kickstarter, so rewards-based crowdfunding campaign. And uh, they were claiming to uh, put Kobe beef in their beef jerky. But then, but then by the wisdom of the crowd, uh, so the, the campaign, the, that particular one, they only wanted to raise a few thousand dollars to get over their reward. So on Kickstarter, the way it's set out is that you state what your goal is. And if you don't get over that capital goal, then, then Kickstarter will not transfer the money to the entrepreneur. So it's, it's called a keep it, sorry, it's called an all or nothing. So if you don't meet, meet your campaign goal, you don't get the money. That's how Kickstarter works. And so they set a fairly low campaign goal of a few thousand dollars. But Kobe beef and beef jerky is a good idea. You know, so they, they, they managed to get over $120,000. Um, 
but the, the campaign hadn't ended yet. And people in the crowd started asking a few questions like, boy, they sure seem to be claiming to sell a lot of Kobe beef, you know, so the amounts that they were claiming, some people worried that it was, you know, more than the worldwide supply of Kobe beef. That's another one issue. Another, another issue is they were offering rewards in exchange for the donations, um, you know, rewards-based crowdfunding. And the cost of the rewards seemed overly high relative to the actual uh, amount of money brought, being brought in. So th these things just didn't seem to add up. And so complaints were sent into Kickstarter that people think that thought that this must be a fraud and Kickstarter indeed suspended the campaign before they had to transfer the 120,000 over. Then, so that, so, you know, in a paper, we just published this paper uh, earlier this year in a journal called the Journal of Business Ethics, where we went through uh, about half a dozen countries, you know, got all of the fraud cases uh, like the Kobe beef case, but a number of other ones and found, you know, only a few hundred frauds uh, huh. relative to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of campaigns. And so, so the so, fraction and, and, of fraud cases are very small. Well, and it's interesting that you found that one case as an example of a fraud that wasn't successful. So they were making yeah, a lot of promises yeah. they couldn't deliver on and the crowd found it. Are there yeah. other examples where one's yet missed? Um, yeah, the, sometimes in some cases, money has been transferred over to the entrepreneurs. Um, uh, you know, the uh, I, I, in in these reward-based camp campaigns, in the particular country, it would go to uh, under the gamut of the Consumer Protection Act. That's how it would be enforced. If it was an equity or debt campaign, then it would fall within in the purview of securities regulatory authorities. Uh, uh, but you know the the number of these uh, frauds is is in fact really quite low. Um, uh, but yeah, much lower than what we see in the in the area of um, of publicly traded companies. Having said that, uh, need to, we need to be a little bit careful because there's a fine line between a fraud and a mistake mm -hmm. or or inability. So so for example, in the area of rewards based crowdfunding. A common one is that you see online is that someone has a new and better drone, you know, and they're coming up with an idea of a new and better drone. And then they, in fact, don't actually come through and successfully develop the project. And so there are a number of these, number of these failure cases. Um, is it, in fact, a fraud? Well, there, we have ways of looking at that. So, for example, if the entrepreneur takes the money and, and doesn't communicate with the crowd, explain why the project failed or or anything at all they just take the money and disappear uh then you know that's much more likely to be a case of fraud as opposed to mistake or inability or whatever other sort of reason for failure but so indeed we do have failure in entrepreneurship it's almost a given that you have to have failure it seems to ultimately yeah. succeed there's so many entrepreneurs who have stories of failure after failure and then they finally find the one thing that works or in the case of thomas edison found ten thousand things that didn't work i guess before he found the one thing yeah. that did are you able to yeah. quantify um the fail the the failure rate you quantified fraud rate but are you able to quantify failure rate in in this well, kind yeah, of funding yeah, yeah non-delivery non same rewards-based crowdfunding non-delivery rates are are fairly high. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I I don't have those figures at the top of my head, but I I would um, 
you know, expect somewhere around a third of projects are perhaps, you know, not successfully uh, developed and delivered. But but I, I'm biting my time a little bit because I don't have those precise numbers on my fingertips. I haven't looked that up recently. But, All right. but indeed, yeah, non-delivery can happen. Uh, is there with, some with sense of, of whether or not it's it's larger in this area than in traditional type of financing? Well, you know, you think of, say, venture capital uh, investment. So venture capital uh, is a little bit later stage, typically, not always, but typically. Uh, venture capital investments are normally in the $1 to $10 million range in the, mm -hmm. in the initial stages where, uh, and then as it evolves into later stages before it becomes a public offering, for instance, they could get into the tens of millions or hundreds of millions. In some cases, the valuations go into the billions. But, uh, you know, so in those projects, you see, uh, give or take, a third uh, companies are written off in a venture capital portfolio. So uh, so that's that's quite similar. And that's what you do expect in high-risk entrepreneurship. And, and so for a venture capitalist, say if you think of 10 investments that they made, they're hoping for a home run from one or two of them. Uh, a third of them go bankrupt, and you have some mediocre stuff in the middle that nobody's really caring too, too much about. But most of the returns are made from one or two home runs. Interesting. Do you know how that compares with established companies? Because it goes back to the point that I raised earlier, is that just because a company is big and established doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Yet we seem yeah. to think that because something's made it to the stock market, that mm -hmm. it has a higher level of tolerance when it comes to risk or maybe a lower risk profile. And it's important yeah. when we get into talking about why these things are regulated differently. But what are the what does the, the data show? I mean, once something is arrived on the on the stock market, does it have a lower risk of failure? Well, you know, the, the people love this expression, too big to fail and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's interesting to look a bit historically at the data. So in the U.S., for instance, the number of publicly listed companies peaked around 96. Uh, so where there was roughly twice as many publicly traded companies back then in the U.S. as we have now. So, uh, so a substantial reduction, uh, some, some company failures, some mergers and the like, and and uh, substantially fewer initial public offerings over the last number of years. Um, mm -hmm. And though the, the decline in IPOs, people have attributed in part to increasing regulatory standards through Sarbanes-Oxley, um, which uh, put in place some restrictions, for instance, on directors and, and increasing standards of director liability. Uh, so after some scandals like Enron and the like. So if you're a negligent director, you're like land you yourself in jail. And then the Dodd-Frank Act um, uh, changed the economics of going public so that uh, it made it, you know, the, the, you have to be a much bigger company for the economics uh, of mm -hmm. going public. So pre, you know, around the late 1990s and early 2000s, you could have IPOs in the US for at a hundred million dollar valuation. And then, Nowadays, most companies going public in the U.S. have they're they're raising uh, money in the billion plus range, or at least the valuation of the company is in the billion plus range. If you're not a a company that's uh, as they would, if the expression is a unicorn, if you're not a billion plus valuation, then you, it's almost uh, well, it's very very hard to get a public listing in the U.S. for a smaller company than that. You know, you've just pieced so together an important an important piece for me because. Um, I've, as I mentioned, I've been involved in this group called Startup TNT, which does yeah. that really early stage investment. And I think that 
that would be akin to crowdfunding. I think of it as yeah. angel investing, but mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to use the right terms because um, the venture capital world, you said, is one to $10 million. So I think of angel investing as being below a million dollars. Venture capital, one to $10 yeah. million. There's this something in the middle. I don't know what to call it. And then there's the IPO that you need for a, a billion dollars. But one of the things I keep getting told is that there's a real dearth of being able to attract that in that 50 to $300 million range. And you've just described exactly why that is. And so what mm -hmm. happens if you can't source that money in your own domestic market, that's when people go to Silicon Valley or they go to some uh, mm -hmm. a place where they, yeah. they have more opportunity. But it, yeah, it does it does raise the question about how you how you solve that funding gap that's been created by regulation. Yeah, indeed, it, it is tricky. And uh, so, so for instance, many venture capitalists uh, in different parts of the world, including but not limited to Canada, will see uh, the exit route uh, selling to another venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, for instance, that gets them more mm -hmm. to that scale up range in the hundred hundreds of millions uh, range. Um, but yeah, depending on the, the, the phase of which you're investing in the, in the company. Um, but yeah, the profile, the, the profile and process to becoming a publicly traded company, the runway has become a bit longer because the big exchanges, you have to be a much more valuable company these days to get a listing. Okay. Let me make sure my terminology is correct though. What is an angel investor? Am I thinking of it right? Is that sort of up to a million dollars worth of, of funding? Uh, commonly, yeah. So angel investors are rich individuals. Uh, uh, normally, they've been successful entrepreneurs themselves in the past. And so they offer capital plus advice, uh, So, which is great for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs very often talk about, uh, not. it's not just about getting the money, it's about getting the right money. So you want the money that comes alongside the advice, the coaching. And so if the successful entrepreneur, you know, brings that coaching element uh, alongside a network of, you know, other strategic investors, uh, mixing you with the right lawyers, the accountants, providing strategic advice, human resource advice. So things like putting in stock option plans for employees and other things uh, to professionalize the firm. So that advice component is really critical. And that's, that's a big part of angel investing. Um, same thing with the venture capitalist. The good venture capitalists are providing advice, not just the capital. And and there and then the amazing thing is in this marketplace, you know, um, uh, like for example, you compare to mutual funds. There's very little performance persistence with mutual fund investing. Performance persistence meaning, you know, you look at who is the best mutual fund last year in terms of the returns. That's not a very good predictor of who's going to be the best one this year. Uh, it's very hard to consistently do well in mutual fund investing. Whereas in venture capital investing, angel investing, there's tremendous performance persistence uh, from one year to the next. So the best best venture capital funds have, have been top, they call it top quartile, the top 25%. The top quartile funds have been the top quartile funds for ages. Uh, so there's not so much movement into and out of the top quartile funds over the years. Um, the best predictor of who's going to be a good investor in coming years is who's been a good investor in past years. Same thing with angel investors. I feel like we need a new term for the 10 to billion dollar investor. <laughs> it seems like we've got a good term once you are going yeah. to the IPO stage. But what is it yeah. that well, really private, large? Yeah, we, we call it more generally private equity. So 
uh, private equity is, but unfortunately private equity is a bit of a catch all term. So, uh, and then different, in different countries, people define it differently, but private equity is, as it implies, you're financing a company that's not listed on a stock exchange. Um, but in, in, for practical sort of things, we often think of private equity as late stage investing. So it's not financing two people starting a business in a garage. That's more like the venture capital sphere. Whereas private equity doing later stage deals, uh, another expression for that is mezzanine financing. If it's financing just before going public, um, private equity funds do turnaround investments. The, the company hasn't you know, done well. They need someone to come in and break it up, turn it around. Um, buyout investments, leverage buyouts, uh, late stage deals. Uh, that's sort of the private equity side of things. And the private equity funds, uh, big ones like uh, Carlisle Group, for instance, is a big American fund. Uh, they uh, tend to be really big, so billions of, of capital under management. And so then that allows them to scale up in that bigger range. Um, you know, whether or not, you know, uh, entrepreneur needs that to go through, yeah, not necessarily like the venture capital funds, at least bigger American venture capital funds um, will have, you know, syndication networks amongst themselves mm -hmm. to provide enough capital to to uh, get to a, a going public stage, but but indeed we do have way fewer IPOs than what we had. Well, then let plus me ask you about that because what's then the advantage of doing an initial public offering? What's the what's the advantage of going public and being traded on the stock market when it does it does seem like it comes with a lot of additional oversight, a lot of additional liability, yeah. a lot more constraint on the decisions that you make, a lot more concern about what yeah. happens with your quarterly profit reports. What would be yeah. the advantage today of going public? Well, it's, it's an age old question. Uh, why list, um, you know, what, what do you need it for? So there's certainly, uh, you know, raising more capital, of course, is the main reason why you'd list. So, if you're in need of a capital raise, you're going to raise proceeds in an IPO, to raise tons, tons of money through an IPO. Um, so that, that the need for capital raise, it does provide an exit for the investors that were part of the private funding pre-IPO. So, so it could be an exit strategy for those that were involved, brings in new capital. Um, it, indeed, it does come with a lot more oversight, as you said. So you have you know, uh, analysts following you all the time, you're focus, focused on quarterly earnings. Um, that could be, you know, that short-termism that it creates could be a, a bit of an issue. But um, on the flip side, being public gives you tremendous marketing advantages, uh, uh, you know, brings in regular retail investors. So investors like you and I uh, might feel some sort of kinship with owning stock in a company and supporting the uh, the company, take for example Disney. You know, a lot of people seem to like to buy Disney stock if they have kids. For instance, they feel like, well, hey, at least I'm, you know, buy, investing in the company where I'm spending all my money. You know, that that kind of thing. Um, so there, there's some sort of you know ancillary benefits like that. You're in the news a little more frequently. Um, uh, but you don't want to be a publicly traded company if you're not ready to be a publicly traded company. So if you don't want that public disclosure on that's imposed upon you, uh, uh, those sort of issues, that could be problematic. And, and so, 
you know, so it is a, it is a big trade-off. It's not right for everybody. And some companies are best exited mm -hmm. as an acquisition. You find another company to purchase you and that's the, the best outcome for the company given some synergies and the like. Uh, yeah, I feel like I should yeah. disclose that I too do own some Disney stocks since you did put it on the table. But <laughs> yeah, you, the way yeah, you've described you it as well is that by having that exit, that then frees up the money for the venture capitalist or the angel investor to go back to the beginning and start yeah. the whole process over again. So it creates a renewal. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. expression that people have is entrepreneurial spawning. So mm -hmm. you do an IPO and then it spawns you know, new, new, uh, new investment, new entrepreneurs, uh, people see the outcome, they want to become an entrepreneur. Uh, so IPOs have a tremendous sort of spillover uh, externality, I guess you would say, uh, that leads to the creation of more new businesses. Hmm. The only nervousness I have is, it seems to me that uh, when you talk about bringing in the retail investor with the IPO, if you have fewer companies that make it to that stage and you've got a large number of retail investors, we're all chasing yeah. around after the same stock. So that would seem to escalate the value that those stocks trade at beyond perhaps what their intrinsic value is. And I'm wondering if we're getting a bit of an imbalance in the market that the regulations have led to more opportunities being in the private equity markets longer, fewer yeah. publicly traded, and now we're seeing massive uh, valuations on these stocks. Is that, is, I, I don't know yeah. if there's a way to quantify uh, what a balanced market would look like, but are we beginning to see signs of concerns that that's the case? Yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have expressed those concerns that, that uh, and indeed the regulations uh, do appear to have made being private uh, more advantageous relative mm. to what it had been in years past. Um, however, there is a flip side to that story, which is, uh, you know, the nature of technology and businesses uh, perhaps have pushed us in a direction where there's a winner take all. So, mm -hmm. so to take, take, for example, I got called on Skype earlier on my cell phone here, which I should have turned off. Um, uh, think of, you know, do you want to own the second best cell phone? Or, you know, or or think of, um, you know, Uber. Uh, uh, if we have driverless cars in the future, you know, there's probably going to be one winner, right? So, hmm. which company is going to have the platform that everybody uses? And and so it's possible that, you know, the uh, the way technologies have evolved is that maybe there are greater economies of scope. That means that a single company is uh, uh, going to win and capture both economies of scale and scope. And, and uh, that's, so that's another explanation as to why things evolve. You know, we don't need the second best social media platform hmm. or we don't need the second best cell phone or, or, you know, say with, you know, even doing these zoom calls or the like, not, you know, I'm even using the, the name of one of the companies just by, unfortunate, uh, you know, uh, familiarity with it, but you know, that's, uh, these things, uh, could change the way in which businesses operate, but that's an evolving area, of course. No kidding. I find it interesting. You're still using Skype because I thought how remarkable it was that Skype yeah. wasn't able to take full advantage of the COVID era. It seems like platforms yeah, like yeah. zoom really have exactly. outmaneuvered. So yeah, let so that's, I'm glad we walked through that because it does seem to me going back to the issue of some of these 
crowd funding models is that that seems to be a way for retail investors, if you want to call it, to have more access to some of these exciting opportunities if they're not yeah. an angel investor or venture capitalist or have private capital or private equity themselves. And so Absolutely. I want to understand a little bit about the different types because you, you've mentioned them, but I think just being a bit more precise about the three different categories that they're in. And then I want to be able to direct someone to sites that they can look at as an example if they're not as familiar with the with them because yeah. there's a, just a pile of them. So let's begin by talking about um, crowdfunding because crowdfunding isn't necessarily an investment. It almost seems to me like it's a donation. And I think of GoFundMe as being the, the principal way in which I've seen a number of different crowdfunded campaigns, but it, I've, I've kind of looked at that as almost being more charitable, but crowdfunding can also happen in the entrepreneurial context too. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, indeed, I think with crowdfunding, it's best to think of four categories. So okay. yeah, the donations base and indeed GoFundMe is perhaps the most popular. And then, and then the rewards crowdfunding where you give money in exchange for something, uh, it could be, for example, early access to a product. Uh, before uh, we leave that, explain how the rewards function worked in the example you gave early with the Kobe beef jerky. Because you said right. that the valuations didn't make sense. Like, were you offered 100 tons of Kobe beef jerky for the rest of your life if you gave a certain amount? Well, give right. me an idea of how it worked. Yeah, yeah. So, they well, they set different levels, you know. Um, uh, you know, and, and I forget exactly the different categories, but a typical campaign might have five to ten rewards levels where, mm -hmm. you know, if you say if you give $10, we'll say thank you on the Internet or... If you give $20, you get a t-shirt. You give $30, you we send some Kobe beef, beef jerky to you. And, you know, sort of different levels like this that, that entice people to give, uh, depending on, you know, how much money they want to want to provide. And the rewards-based crowdfunding levels do tend to be lower um, uh, relative to, say, equity uh, crowdfunding and loan-based crowdfunding. Uh, so, but yeah, that's... Um, uh yeah the reward the reward space so the, the two main reward space uh platforms are kickstarter uh and indiegogo those two platforms can be accessed by entrepreneurs in most places around the world I, we've seen data where people from over 100 countries use those two platforms okay and, now before we go on to the other ones i think you've got a pretty famous story about the oculus that was funded through one of those platforms is am i correct oh yeah yeah this is a kickstarter platform oculus uh the it's uh the 3d gaming so virtual reality and funded through crowdfunding and it it predated the the equity crowdfunding rules in the us so at the time oculus went through equity was illegal in the us and so the technology extremely popular and you can imagine how that attract the interest of uh younger folks uh people in the crowd so to speak that were into into gaming and this technology of 3d was something spectacular if you've tried it it's really a, quite an impressive i have tried it my my nephew yeah. got it and it is remarkable that you put it on yeah, and it's, it's an immersive experience yeah yeah you're in a new world <laughs> you didn't think it was uh, possible you jumped ahead in the future somehow and so the Oculus um, uh, was was very successful. They raised a few million through rewards-based crowdfunding on Kickstarter. The entrepreneurs were successful in developing their product. And then they 
sold it to Facebook for a couple of billion. And then the, the people in the crowd were very upset. They said, they were, well, we, we took the risk. We, you know, we funded this and we didn't benefit in the upside. And, and, and then more generally, you know, it led people to wonder to say, Hey, I can, you know, take $5,000 or $10,000 and go to Vegas and bet on the slots. But here, here we are in, you know, America where we can't even invest in an entrepreneur. And so, so they, uh, that, that was uh, one of the big things that pushed things forward to say, well, I mean, we could do equity crowdfunding and all that sorts of other countries around the world, but countries traditionally seen as less entrepreneurial than us, like New Zealand, Australia, the UK, for example, and why can't we do it here? And so that led to the Jumpstarter Businesses Act. And, and well, let, before, okay, before I get there, I'm, I'm wondering if that example makes it more difficult for entrepreneurs to use this rewards-based crowdfunding because it's quite true. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, like I'll give $20 to buy a t-shirt for uh, the kids going door to door if they're going to, to be raising money. But it's another thing to yeah. feel like you put your money in and you didn't get anything out. So has it kind of closed that avenue for people uh, who want to raise you know, that way or not so much? Well, depend depends on the product. There could be good reasons to go in the, the rewards-based crowdfunding route. Uh, and, and indeed, the people in the crowd do still love the idea of early access to a product. And so many successful entrepreneurs have gone that route. A good, a good Canadian example, for instance, is Pebble Watch. A uh, company originally, the entrepreneurs were in around the Waterloo area. Um, and it's one of the more successful Kickstarter campaigns in history. They raised, I believe the number was $10 million. And so it was a very successful product. It predated, that example predated the Apple Watch. So the company didn't do so well after Apple Watch came out with their mm. own version of a smartwatch. But the first was this Pebble Watch. And so, so, so just yeah. so I'm understanding it then, it's almost like um, at a certain level, you're pre-purchasing the product. Yeah. Is that, is that it, how it, we very, very think about so, it? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, that is. That is a way to think about it, but definitely not all campaigns and in, in rewards based are pre-purchased products. Um, Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so the, 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 even the craziest example is an entrepreneur in Ohio, uh, just because crowdfunding has become so popular, you know, people love talking about it. And and by the way, the reason people love talking about it is they think of it as decentralized finance. You know, so people, you know uh younger generation these days they don't like these traditional institutional models where someone you know in an intermediary is deciding what becomes successful and what doesn't you know whether that's being tv content financing entrepreneurs other things so this is now decentralized finance so you open things up to the whole crowd There's even more generally the expression is DeFi. so DeFi, the the world gets to participate in how products are developed by having, you know, ongoing discussions with the entrepreneurs through these platforms. You can offer comments, advice, and everything. So people just love the concept. Like crowdfunding is, you know, the way the future for many people. And then if you, you know, support this, then you're part of this bigger community that feel, makes you feel like, you know, you got uh, non-pecuniary benefits as well. And so an entrepreneur in Ohio thought, well, let's take this to the extreme level. And he put up a project that said, I'm making potato salad. <laughs> and his campaign goal was 
$10, right? And it, it was, of course, a joke, like 100% of a joke. But and he, and he had rewards level that if you give me a dollar, I'll say your name on the internet. Two dollars, I'll cut your name into a potato. Three dollars, I'll you know, I'll I'll put your name on a recipe book. You know, just total jokes. And he raised sixty five thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! Incredible. <laughs> you know, I got to be part of the potato salad crowd, honey. You know, so so these things do go viral. They get people get very excited about it. And just uh, that one, just. Uh, just part of the culture of it, you could say. Those are such great stories. So I think the next levels that we'll talk about with the the crowd um, uh, equity and the crowd, um, so crowd investing and crowd lending. So whether you take an equity yeah. position or a debt position, those sound like they're a lot more serious a level and maybe a lot more regulated as well. So so tell us what happened sure. after the Oculus example. You said that, the, that some regulation came through. Yeah, so you know, equity crowdfunding has been very popular outside of North America for a long time. Uh, the UK dating back to 2010. Australia even had a platform running um, called ASOB, Australia Small Sale Offering Board, uh, dating back to 2007. New Zealand has been around uh, for well over a decade. Uh, and then even continental Europe, uh, including but not limited to countries Well, we had Israel, but it's also in Germany and other places, France, for example, all these places have a lot of equity crowdfunding. And then, uh, but for some reason, Canada and the US, uh, not so much. Um, and so Oculus was one of the ones that sort of pushed things forward. And we had the Jobs Act, Jumpstart Our Business Act that uh, uh, brought in a framework to allow equity crowdfunding in the US. and. Then the first offering started in May of 2016. That was the very first campaign in was in May of 2016. And oh my so, goodness, that's that's yeah. only five years ago. That's remarkable. yeah, so it's not a long history. Yeah, so and it's way, 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 way behind the rest of the world. It's it's sort of funny because a lot of people think, well, hey, you know, North America is the engine of entrepreneurship and innovation, but definitely somehow fell behind in the in this DeFi world that we find ourselves in, decentralized finance. And so the, but it's, it's catching up and gaining in popularity. Um, the way, you know, basically the way it works is it's, it's, it's similar to an initial public offering on a stock exchange, but in the case of an IPO uh, for initial public offering, when you list for the first time on say NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, you know, you have to, for those cases, you have to put together a prospectus. Perspective is that huge document that's, you know, often in really small font, single space, that it has uh, all this mandated information, like five years of historical financial information, future-oriented financial information, all these risk disclosures, other things. And to put together a prospectus can be very expensive. It's normally in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then it could even be in the millions for a larger offering. You have to pay legal fees investment banking fees, accounting fees, you have to pay people to go do due diligence. Um, so for example, you know, famous Canadian one was the Sino Forest, you know, so so the, uh, or as they say, see no forest, because someone didn't do their due diligence by actually going to see if there's actually a forest where this was based on, you know, uh, so the due diligence process, so very expensive prepared perspective. Might I also and, add with Canada, since we can also have um, offerings in Quebec, that then you also have the additional complication of having to have bilingual um, uh, translation as yeah, well. Exactly, exactly. And and then, 
you know, duplication of securities regulatory things, which they've tried to streamline over the years, but uh, but a lot of people think it's a bit of an antiquated system having, you know, different securities regulators in, in each province. But that's that's a whole other conversation. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's yeah. So it's expensive to do an IPO. Um, an equity crowdfunding offering is is like an IPO without a perspective, and the amounts raised. So the way things work in securities regulation is when you so so anybody can you know uh, raise money from a handful of people, but once you start having you're trying to sell something like a share in a company, and you go out canvas a lot of people, then then the securities authorities get worried that you're promoting something that shouldn't be promoted or at least not promoted without a prospectus. And so then they have this general thing that you need a prospectus unless you fall within an exemption. And so there's different exemptions that get you out of having to prepare this expensive prospectus. And uh, one exemption, for example, is if you're only talking to super rich people like accredited investors that, you know, meet a wealth or income test which varies by provinces over the years, as it turns out. But, you know, that's one type of exemption where you don't need a prospectus because apparently the rich and wealthy people are sophisticated enough. They don't oh, need that's interesting. That explains a lot. And it, what, yeah. what is the typical approach that they take? Because the, the one I've seen, and this is, again, just relative to my home province, is I think you need to demonstrate that you've got a two years of income above $200,000 or $5 yeah. million worth of of net exactly. worth and yeah. is that a fairly common bar to reach yeah. as to get yeah. a, a, as an accredited investor yeah but, uh, but it, again it, those uh levels have varied over time and across provinces so you know whether you're accredited in one province versus the other depends mm -hmm. on the province and and so uh, there's there's not perfect harmonization it also varies across countries so every country has their level of what uh, an accredited investor is going to be, um, you know, uh, that's, that they feel is appropriate for their particular jurisdiction. Okay. Uh, so yeah. that's when you don't need to have a prospectus for, for investment, but then what yeah. is the level of access that you can be, if you just want to be a regular investor, I mean, you talk about it being decentralized finance. So that suggests to me that there's a lot of retail customers who would yeah. want to, or retail investors who'd want to get, uh, who would want to enter into this market. Is that what these platforms enable as exactly, a smaller yeah. investment? Yeah. So the securities regulators created a new exemption uh, in Canada called the crowdfunding exemption. And so the crowdfunding exemption is a new bucket that allows retail investors some access, not not uh, perfect access or nor not unfettered access to, to crowdfunding. And so the, the crowdfunding exemption has in place on top of it a bunch of rules. And pre-June 2021, those rules varied by province, but since June 2021, they've tried to harmonize them. But they do have restrictions in there that include, for example, how much money a company or an entrepreneur can raise in a 12-month period. Um, and that's uh, now at a million and a half after June of 2021. Previously, it was set at $250,000 for two capital raises. So a million, or sorry, half a million dollars in a year. And now it's been up to a million and a half. If you wanted uh, a comparable, uh statistic for the us they uh, pre-march of 2021 
it was set at a million seventy thousand, and then they upped the limit to five million. So now mm -hmm. entrepreneurs can raise up to five million through crowdfunding in the U.S. And then there's restrictions on how much entrepreneurs can, uh, uh, or sorry, how much investors like people like you and I, but they limit how much money that we can invest. Uh, so uh, the limits in Canada previously per year were fifteen hundred. So they they limit the basically saying the you know if you want to lose some money we're limiting you to losing fifteen hundred basically. Uh, thinking of the downside not the upside and now it's been up to 2500 is now at the limit now uh and yeah and then in other other places it's you know other countries around the world it's you know different types of regulations but perhaps a little bit similar so in the uk for example the way they do it is 10 percent of your annual income is the hmm. is, or or total wealth whichever uh, is uh, lower than the that's the amount that you can put into an equity crowdfunding campaign each year. Uh, well, it's, and it's yeah. interesting too when you when you when you describe how different the limits are, and you can see because you've done a paper where you examine the success in being able to raise money through these different means. And it looks to me, if I'm remembering the chart bar chart correctly, like the UK is way out ahead. UK is the best crowdfunding market in the world. So they. They, uh, you know, they know they the market works basically. So they, they've been around. They have uh, the, the the biggest platform is called CrowdCube. That's equity crowdfunding platform in the UK. I encourage you to, you know, instead of watching TV tonight, just go onto the internet, look at CrowdCube, just because it's exciting. You see, see the innovations that are out there that are being uh, ideas that are being coming out, and uh, and then you know the the UK market is one that works well. And, you know, earlier today, we mentioned this idea of signaling. And, mm -hmm. and you know, one thing that you sometimes wonder about is, is does crowdfunding actually work in the sense, you know, do you see bad projects go ahead and get funded? Or do you see um, uh, others that are, you know, that, that should have been funded that aren't, you know? And so the what, what we like to look at in large sample evidence is you, you want to see if signals actually work in the crowdfunding case. And so we, we've examined a lot of data with the, with the UK market. And you see that, that the market functions in a very efficient and proper sense in, in so far as when entrepreneurs design good campaigns and signal their ability, then they do very well. They do very well. And so, actually, I, I got a great, if you like examples, I got a great UK example. Yes. A lot of people can relate to, you know, it's, it's at least at my time, it's now four o'clock. And so, of course, what am I thinking about? Well, maybe I'm going to have a beer later today. So let's have, let's have a beer example. So there's this uh, uh, campaign in the UK uh, uh, dating back a few, few years back. Rushmore, they were raising money for bars, so pubs in the UK. And in uh, just a short order, they raised over a million pounds in a couple of weeks. Uh, they designed a campaign where they sold ten, a 10% equity stake, and they, they only wanted to raise a few hundred thousand dollars or a few hundred thousand pounds. And they raised over raised uh, well in excess of that. I think the total capital raise was over a million pounds. And so extremely successful equity crowdfunding campaign. And then, so a couple of months later, Another bar comes along called 
they, they didn't have a great name called Meatballs. Well, you could, maybe that's a good name, maybe not. But but then but then they designed a bad campaign. And the, you know and what you know what I mean by a bad campaign? They they so same industry, same city. Other these are London-based bars. Same industry, same city. Meatballs comes along and says, "We're going to sell a quarter of our company." And, and in their case, so the the um, uh, Rushmore they wanted to raise a million pounds. Meatballs only wanted to raise three hundred thousand pounds, and and they said we're willing to give up twenty five percent of our company. And so the the people that are familiar with the equity crowdfunding campaigns would go, "That's ridiculous! Hmm. Like you don't want to give up twenty five percent of your company. You don't need to give up twenty five percent of your company." And in fact, if you say that you're going to give up 25% of your company, we might think that you're so stupid that you don't deserve to raise any money at all, right? And so, so indeed, and in, a month after raised, starting this campaign, they they only raised 4,700 pounds, so 4,700 4, pounds. That's it. And that's remarkable. So they they didn't meet that you know threshold of uh, so so none of the money gets transferred to them and. And that's what you would say is a properly functioning market where investors are not, you know, unintelligent. They they can see what's going on. And if you don't design your campaign well, then it, you're not going to raise any money. And so many examples of this around the world where entrepreneurs try to raise money and they raise zero because they don't know what they're doing. It, 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 you're almost describing a market that is self-regulating in a way that's better than the oversight of a regulatory body. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, of course we're all worried that, you know, your grandmother or your dad or something is going to go, Oh, well, I, I could, you know, put my life savings into this, you know? Um, uh, but we don't see evidence of that happening, you know, but, but indeed I'm not saying there isn't a rule for securities regulation here. Uh, you know, regulation is of course important to protect those downsides and, and you know we haven't had so many or really any big major scandals, uh, apart from the odd uh, thing going on. But say relative to publicly traded companies, nothing fails in comparison. And so, so the uh, but but it, you know maybe something will come up in the future where we're going to say, oh thank God we had some regulatory protection. But but indeed for the most part we see this DeFi model where there's the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, it's a very properly functioning marketplace, um, but I, I would never go so far as to say there's no role for securities regulatory authorities. Because uh, uh, when you know people like to complain about them, but when we need them, we really need them. You know, uh, so so thank God they're there. But but indeed, you know that we do have to have that right balance of not having too much onerous regulation and the like. One one of the ones that if I can make a small point actually not so small point is um, uh, having audited financial statements. So that's one of the areas of that many people have had concern about. So so having audited financial statements is expensive. And so one of the re regulatory concerns that has been in place over the years in Canada has been a requirement to have audited financial statements if you go the crowdfunding route. And be, people don't like that. That's, that, that's uh, too much of a financial burden on entrepreneurs to, you know, commit at a very young and early stage to spending all that money on, on externally audited financial statements that could be problematic, you know? I have to uh, presume that in the UK, since you've got, since you said they have the best crowdfunding environment, 
Is it, do they not require audited financial statements? I, you know, I, boy, it's funny that you asked that and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure no, but I, but I, I'm, I'm an academic, <laughs> you know, I always like to triple check when I look things up and I, I so, wish I had that one at the top of my head. So well, I, I'm going to go know, check so it I, out. I don't want to be online or say something that I'm not a thousand percent uh, sure on. So I, I, I'm always happy to admit when I forget something. So no I'm problem. not hundred percent sure on that one. I should mention if yeah. people want to look for a Canadian example, you looked this up for me earlier, Front Funder. F-U-N-D-R oh, yeah. yeah. is a place where they have the similar type of market, but it's really important for people to understand yeah. there's quite different approaches. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. and the UK might be one that, that uh, we should have a look at to see whether some of our rules need to be, to be brought up to speed. You know, yeah. you've given me a lot of confidence. I was, I was worried about the state of entrepreneurship before I talked to you, because it, it does seem to me that there are a lot of forces against uh, uh, the capital formation and against investment and against entrepreneurs. But this gives me a lot of confidence that there is a grassroots level of support for innovation. Yeah. Do, do you feel yeah, optimistic I, too? I, I love it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I uh, get all animated when I think about crowdfunding, you know, I think this is, this is uh, going to continue to grow, become increasingly important. Um, you know, it gives uh, it really the, the best way to put it democratizes access to capital. Um, uh, in so many ways. So people that weren't traditionally fundable can become fundable. And so, and, and it can be on many different levels as well. Like uh, think of regional disparities. So being urban, rural, this province, that province, you know, traditionally we've had gaps depending on where that centralized intermediary was. Now you have decentralized finance. It just opens the scope up. So there's so many tremendous new things. Um, you can do this on a gender basis, uh, male, female. Um, there, there's even crowdfunding platforms strictly for women. Uh, uh, also, racial disparities would be another one. You know, so when you have the the crowd financing the population of entrepreneurs, then things become they become more fair, they become more open, equitable, uh, and then. And then you're not letting the decision about what are good ideas or bad ideas to, you know, perhaps the few, fewer individuals to think about it. You can get things going ahead based on what the what a greater sense of the population likes. So really, it's really a game changer. And it's something that I think we're only going to increasingly see. And, and there are very few reasons not to love it. I mean, I, I, I just think Boy, this is uh, the most exciting thing that I've seen in ages, absolute ages. You know, I, it makes me excited to get up in the morning. You know? It's remarkable yeah. to me that we still have yeah. so much upside since we're really so brand new at it. I'm looking forward to talking yeah. to you about this again once we've got a little bit more experience under our belt in North America. Love it. Right on. Well, thank you. That you was uh, Douglas Cumming. He is the DeSantis Distinguished Professor of Finance and Entrepreneurship at Florida Atlantic University and, of course, Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 